0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. In her new book, Eating Our Way Through the Anthropocene, which was originally delivered as the Stegner Lecture at the 2020 Annual Symposium of the Wallace Stegner Center for Land Resources and the Environment at the University of Utah, Jessica Fanzo explores how in the context of broad global trends of population growth, climate crisis, and inequitable food availability, food systems need to be reoriented to ensure that they can produce enough food to nourish the world. She's going to tell us how as we go along this hour. Uh, she's also Vice Dean of Faculty Affairs at the NITSE School of Advanced International uh, Studies at Johns Hopkins University, Editor-in-Chief for Global Food Security. Since 2017, has served on various advisory groups such as Food Systems, Economic Commission, Global Nutrition Report, and others. She's author of uh, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2021. Just Penzo, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: Good to uh, good to have you on. Am, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You are. Okay, okay good. Um, I want to start a little bit with with your personal journey. I was reading a bit from uh, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet. Very interesting journey. You started with nutrition at the molecular level, right? And then through That's experiences right, that you've had, you've got you know totally macro. Uh, tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Yeah, I think for many people who, who start in academia, you have to focus, and I started off doing lab sciences um, and really kind of cut my teeth trying to understand molecular mechanisms of what we eat and how it shapes our, our genes and, and, and our health outcomes. And I grew a bit tired of being in a lab with pipettes <laughs> and not really any anyone around me and just wanted to make a bigger difference, interact more with people, make a bigger impact on public health. And so I started to think about nutrition and how nutrition interacts with agriculture, what it means to grow food, what is the impact of, of growing that food on humanity and really started to work in africa and that's where it really opened my eyes and thinking about things differently and so i left bench science and and moved much more into public health than thinking about the interactions with food and climate and and people
0: of course this book's just coming out from university of utah press uh was this was a lecture given in 2020 uh your your book uh, from 2021 that i referenced um can uh, fixing dinner fix the planet uh, published in, in 2021 and of course you you would have been working on that you referenced that and you preface to that book uh, during covid right um, mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that I wonder if you could talk about that how covid illustrated to us um, the fragility of the of our food systems
1: yeah I, th- I think covid did for me uh, two things one it showed how something like a zoonotic disease can have implications on the planet. And by zoonotic, meaning um, a disease that originates in animals and then spills over into another species, that being human. And most likely, COVID came from a zoonotic spillover event. And it matters for food because through agriculture mainly we are shrinking and destroying natural habitats where wildlife lives and we are forcing wildlife to move and put us putting ourselves at closer proximity to wildlife and that puts us at significant risk for these zoonotic spillover events so agriculture is a big driver of destruction of these habitats where wildlife species are, are living, putting us in in closer proximity to them. That's one thing. I think the other thing with COVID is that it really showed a we are all in this together kind of problem. If one country doesn't take action or one country hoards vaccines, we will continually be affected. And it matters in the food space because food is so central to the climate change agenda problem. And climate change is another example of a we are all in this together. If one country doesn't take action, we will all remain impacted by that problem. So to me, COVID, it was an interesting time to be working on the book because um, COVID was so directly and indirectly impacted by food systems and, and the way we grow our food. Uh,
0: define for me food systems. Talk a little bit about that. We, you know, As, uh, as consumers, we, you know, we go to the supermarket, we get the food, and uh, we don't tend to think about the, the holistic uh, part of this. Uh, what is a food yeah. system?
1: So, Tom, you, every day you interact with the food system. Because you either walk into a market or you go online and you order food or you buy food. You are engaging with this bigger system. Now, some of us engage very locally with systems. We're going to a farmer's market. We're buying food directly from farmers. Some of us walk into Walmart. And we don't know where our food is coming from. But those are all part of this larger global food system. So food systems is everything about food. Food is grown. We need a lot of inputs to grow that food. We need land. We need sunshine. We need water. We need fertilizers at times. We need to stave off pesticides. Food is processed into you know, what Michael Pollan called food-like substances. (laughs) (laughs) It's packaged, it's moved, and it hits supermarkets and restaurants, all these different places where we are part of the food system. We as citizens go in and make decisions about what we're going to buy. Some of us have more options. Some of us have less. Some of us have more choice. Some of us have less. But that whole system of growing Packaging, processing, moving food, and buying food is all part of this big global food system that involves many actors, some very large-scale corporations to very small-scale.
0: Um uh... Before we d- jump into this, um, maybe you could uh, give us the illustration uh, that you gave uh, when you, at the opening of your book, uh, "Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet." This was very helpful for me. This doesn't give the whole scope, right? But it, but it gives uh, a bit of an illustration. It's the it's the introduction with the with the fun title, "Yes, We Have No Bananas," um, <laughs> and uh, you you talk about how. When I go to the store and buy a banana, what, what has happened before that and how that affects—you get into talking a bit about how that affects uh, climate change, for example.
1: Yeah, when when you walk into the grocery store and you buy a banana, questions come up to, to the surface of what's the price of that banana? Um, is it the true cost of that banana? Where did it come from? It probably came from a plantation somewhere in Costa Rica or the Philippines or, or Nicaragua. Who was working on that plantation? What were their wages? Um, what were their work conditions like? Were they working in the heat, most likely? How far did that banana travel to get to you in such perfect shape? Um, what's its nutritional value? What's the variety of that banana? Why do they all look the same? So it brings about a lot of questions when you pick up a food that you're going to purchase. Where does it come from? Who grew that food for me? Why is it at this price where other things are more expensive? Why does it all look the same? Or why are there so many different choices of that banana? In this case, not many choices of different varieties. So it brings about lots of questions about, the food system and how did that banana get to your shopping cart? Um, Some of the foods, when we start to track them, have a very sordid story, you know, dark histories, um, inequitable uh, livelihoods behind those. Others, um, we're learning more about where our food comes from. We understand how it's grown. We understand who's growing it, where it's coming from, and the nutritional value and the safety of that food. So it really depends on what kind of foods you're, you're looking at. But the banana is sort of this classic story of a dwindling biodiversity um, grown on a handful of plantations around the world, often not, uh, uh, not uh, grown with, with equity and, and better, fair labor practices in mind.
0: So in your Stegner lecture, you talk about how the food system has been changing in both positive and negative ways. Uh, also, mm-hmm. how food systems are attributed to climate change. I wonder maybe you could talk a little bit about positive ways, negative ways the food system have been changing.
1: Yeah, I mean when you think about it, Tom, you know over I, you know I'm I'm 50 years old, so I was born in 1971, and and even the way we interact with food has significantly changed. You know when my mom was growing up. She was born post-World War II. It was all about convenient foods. We had Spam and Jell-O and Swanson's TV dinners, and convenience was king. Um, And, you know, I think with the counterculture movements of the 60s and 70s, they brought to light that maybe this highly industrialized food system was not the best system. That being said, um, our food system has become incredibly efficient. We are producing calories that could feed the world. Now, there's, there's controversy around equity around that, but our agriculture system has become incredibly efficient at producing calories and huge amounts of foods, a lot of diverse foods around the world. And that has largely staved off some of the massive famines that our great-grandparents saw in South Asia and parts of Africa. And we haven't had these massive famines since then. We've had some micro-famines and places where there's conflict. You still see some uh, starvation and, and hunger issues. But the agriculture system and the food system has become incredibly efficient. But with that comes cracks. You know, we're seeing issues around food contributing about 30% of total greenhouse gas emissions, so big contributors to climate change. We see that our food has become very highly processed and packaged, which is detrimental for human health. And we see that some people get access to healthy diets and others cannot afford that. So we see a lot of inequities. So with the efficiency and the scaling of the food system has created environmental concerns, human health concerns, and inequities in, in the system. And we need to fix those because we're really seeing it right now um, with, with climate change, the Ukraine-Russia crisis. We're seeing these cracks get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, we're running out of time to fix them, but, but we still can um, with the right government action um, and corporations doing the right thing.
0: Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, as we go along the hour, we'll talk about some solutions, uh, what can be done. Uh, we're talking with Jessica Fenzo, who is a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Global Food Policy and Ethics and Vice Dean of Faculty Affairs at the NITSE School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Author of a new book coming out uh, or it's out now from uh, University of Utah Press called Eating Our Way Through the Anthropocene. This was originally delivered as the Stegner Lecture uh, for the Wallace Stegner Center for Land, Resources, and Environment at University of Utah. Uh, She also has another book published last year, uh, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet, published by Johns Hopkins University. We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest for the hour is Jessica Fanzo, Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Global Food Policy and Ethics at Johns Hopkins University, Editor-in-Chief for Global Food Security, author of Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? and uh, just out now from University of Utah Press, Eating Our Way Through the Anthropocene, which is based on a Stegner lecture at uh, University of, uh, of Utah. So Jessica Fanzo, you talk in this lecture about um, you know our food system and vulnerable points, uh, especially as it impacts uh, uh, climate. Um, and scientists have modeled future scenarios of agriculture production in a three degrees Celsius warmer world. That's kind of a, a middle prediction, I think. If, if, you know, five Celsius is the doomsday, and the goal is to no more than one point five. I think, right? So uh, tell me a little bit about what this modeling shows uh, with a three-degree warmer world.
1: Yeah, and I think it's easy, you know, when you look at some of the models, uh, if if you go even to 2, 2.5, some of the impacts um, on food systems from climate change will be significant. Some of the big ones are, of course, Um, extreme events, flooding, droughts are currently and will continue to decimate uh, the agriculture sector um, now and into the future. And we're already seeing that in some places, you know, prolonged heat droughts and and flooding um, is is, uh, really decimating crops. But when we look at the models as the world starts to even further warm, um, there will be a significant decline in the ability for many different landscapes to grow enough food. So when we were speaking earlier, Tom, right now the world does grow enough food for an 8 billion uh, population, which we'll reach at the end of this year. But with climate change, that's going to be difficult yields of key staple crops like corn, rice, wheat. It'll be really challenging for much of the global south, except for the very northern territories of the world. The other big issue, and a lot of modeling has now uh, come to consensus on this, of different scientists working together and, and separately, is that when there's more CO2, a greenhouse gas, In the atmosphere, the nutritional quality of crops will decline. So models suggest that key nutrients like protein, uh, iron, zinc will decline among a whole series of crops, not only uh, carbohydrate staple crops, but key vegetables and fruits and what they call a CO2 fertilization effect. So that is sort of the second piece of, of what the models are predicting. The third is this what's called multiple breadbasket failure in which simultaneous extreme events will hit major growing areas, creating significant failures of, of crops that are predominantly feeding the planet. Um, we just have just seen With Ukraine and Russia going to war, those are two major breadbasket countries. They produce a lot of calories for the world. And that has had implications on global food prices, food stocks, food supplies. And that's just two countries being affected by a war. You can imagine in a climate change scenario where you have a lot of extreme events happening, wildfires, droughts, floods. That could really be be uh, negatively um, impacting a lot of the agriculture systems around the world. So it's not a very it's not a very uplifting picture. But if we don't take action on climate, it's going to get incredibly difficult. You know, and just and just heat stress. It's going to be hard to raise livestock in a hot world. I mean, these are big beasts. You know, cows <laughs> need to be cooled off, and if It's going to put a lot of strain on ranchers to be able to raise cattle in a a hot world. So we're really going to see some ramifications if if action's not taken.
0: I was uh, interested, surprised, distressed, I guess, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, Food safety (laughs) will be impacted um, if the current trends uh, continue. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, and with with climate, we're going to see um, mm-hmm. new emergent infectious diseases, uh, different patterns of foodborne illnesses, again due to strains on the ability to keep food cold during transport, um, just different strains of 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 emerging infectious diseases and mm-hmm. and their etiology change. So. It's going to be a a less predictable world when it comes time to food safety and our ability to ensure that the food supply chains uh, remain intact for for human health and for human uh, food safety. So um, and some of that is is known and some of that is unknown um, and what will emerge. Um, So, again, as much as we can ensuring that technologies can uh, be able to detect and then and, and surveillance measures are in place and of course some countries who are resource constrained don't have those surveillance mechanisms in place so it, it creates an uncertain future there too
0: if you just joined us we're uh, talking about food uh, eating our way through the Anthropocene is the, the author the title of a new book the author is Jessica Fanso. Um, she's author also of Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet and Jessica Venzo is Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Global Food Policy and Ethics at Johns Hopkins uh, University Um, so talk to me a little bit about our diets Um, there's some distressing statistics here in in this uh, your lecture um, that uh, you know I I think you know talking about right now uh, let alone in the future uh, in a climate stressed uh, future uh, let me just read some of these. One in three people are malnourished. Approximately 800 million people go to bed hungry. 150 million children who are stunted or chronically undernourished. Uh, the the stats go on and on. The, the, the diet problems right now.
1: Yeah, a lot of the malnutrition we see in the world is, is directly related to the types of foods we eat. And, you know, one of the most alarming statistics I find, Tom, is, billion people are overweight or obese, and um, a lot of that is due to the kind of diets we eat, and diets now are one of the top risk factors of disease and death in the world, which just blows my mind because, you know, when I was a, a young nutritionist, diet was never really thought of as a risk factor. Now it's up with smoking, uh, with air pollution, with uh, excessive alcohol intake as being a risk factor for disease. And it's one of the top. And why is that? Well, a lot of that has to do with the types of foods that we have access to. You know, what is cheap and readily available are these highly processed packaged junk foods. They're tasty, you know, they're sugary, they're salty, they're rich in flavor. Um, they're really convenient and, and they're low cost. And, that, and those kind of foods are everywhere in the world. Um, and we can't blame people for eating those. They're just, it's what is mostly available and what people can afford um, about three billion people can't afford what is considered a healthy diet. You know, that's a diet made up of fresh fruits and vegetables, beans, nuts and seeds, um, whole grains. You know, it's that kind of diet is expensive and not easy to to eat. So this is where governments and and food industry need to step in and provide those foods and in. In cheap ways that are more readily accessible for everybody. Um, so diets are moving towards being less healthy, less sustainable from an environmental standpoint because we're eating a lot of high carbon foods, and and not everyone can access a healthy diet. So something's gone wrong in our global food system and the governing of that system. We need to get it back on track
0: you talk about uh, the eat lancet commission or eat lancet commission eat. That, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's eat a, a, a purposeful acronym i guess the eat lancet commission <laughs> um, the goal of that commission was to define a healthy diet that would allow the world to stay within the earth's planetary boundaries while feeding a global population of 10 billion humans by 2050 ambitious right uh, so uh, uh, mm-hmm. t- t- tell me about some of the some of the ideas that can can help
1: yeah, the Eat Lancet Commission set out to to try to come up with a diet that was not only beneficial for human health that averted a lot of disease and death but that was environmentally sustainable and that Eat Lancet Commission was quite controversial because the big recommendation that came out of that was that the world, on average, needs to eat less meat, less animal products, particularly red meat and pork, and move more towards plant-based foods, more veggies, more fruits. Um, And that was the big finding. Now, there's a range of animal source foods that one can consume, and there's some Countries and some individuals that consume a lot of meat every day. So, the, the Eat Lancet doesn't argue that everyone needs to become a vegan, you know, no animal foods, but it does recommend that people come down in their animal food intake and try to boost more plant based foods. Uh, they also talk about uh, reducing food waste at the household. Uh, food waste in the retail sector, Um, and what's not talked about in the Eat Lancet, which is becoming more and more important, which I think many people are confused about, is focusing more on the kinds of foods you eat and less about food miles, how far your food has traveled. Everyone seems to think that if you buy local, you're maybe saving the planet, but it's, it's more about the kinds of foods like moving away from beef having maybe more chicken is more environmentally friendly than um buying local beef for example hmm.
0: so you you've uh, you've, uh, you've touched a couple of potential third rails there um what, what, <laughs> which is which i'm sure you know uh so let me let me hmm. tackle the second one first which is you know local food we've Local food, that's been drilled into us, and there are a lot of good things about local food, right? But uh, but you're saying that maybe more important is the kinds of foods you eat.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, knowing knowing where your food comes from, and even better, knowing who's grown them, knowing your farmers, it's fantastic, right? You learn about, uh, especially for children, they learn about where their food's coming from, Um they can track it. They know who the farmers are. You learn to support those farmers. It's important for social cohesion of communities, local economies, um, and it, it makes you feel good when you go to a farmer's market and you know who your farmer is. You know them by name, and and you're supporting them. So that's that's important. Um, but when we look, you know. The way global food systems have been op- operated and organized, long value chains are incredibly efficient. And just because food has come from China doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's contributed to a lot of greenhouse gas emissions because of the miles they've traveled. Usually shipments in, in boats where your food is moving um, are very efficient. Compared to uh, local truck miles, so that whole transportation food miles is is really not true it 's much more about how was your food grown and by whom and where so beef red meat livestock they just produce a lot of emissions methane emissions and a lot of fossil fuels go into growing beef and forests are really important as carbon sinks and the number one driver of deforestation is beef so understanding food and how it's raised or grown um and the environmental footprint of that is much more important than than say the distance traveled of your of your food
0: so the, the, the Eat Lancet uh, Commission, they, they're recommending that red meat production would need to decline by 65%, which is that's, that's a big decline. Um, and of course, you know, ranchers are not going to be on board with this. That's their livelihood, right? Um, and it, a lot of tradition involved here, right? Uh, long tradition, especially in the American West. Uh, we, we eat beef. Um, and so there, there are some barriers that are going to have to be overcome, I guess.
1: Absolutely. I mean, for, for ranchers, this report was not a welcome report because it does infringe on their livelihoods. It infringes on their culture and their ancestry and their way of life. Um, in my In my view, I feel that many ranchers are deeply concerned about climate change. And they are moving towards how do we ensure that these livestock systems are more sustainable? What does that look like? Um, Does that mean feeding different um, feed? Does it mean um, more rotational grazing? You know, there's, there's a lot of different solutions on the table with regard to how to raise livestock and ensure that ranchers' livelihoods are, um, respected and, and they have a future, um, in the world. Um, but there are, you know, tech companies like some of the plant-based burger companies that want to eliminate livestock from the planet. Now I work a lot in Africa in Ethiopia and East Africa and livestock and pastoral systems are really important. And I don't see them going away in the near future. They may be constrained with climate change, it may become increasingly difficult for them to raise livestock. Um, But, you know, I think there needs to be some give and take around the livestock system. And how do we just ensure that it is the most sustainable and that we don't continue extensifying livestock systems into important forest landscapes like the Amazon and the Congo Basin? Now, how do we get to grips with some, some of that? But I don't think in the near future meat's going to go away and people will con- continue to consume meat. But can we do it more in a sustainable way and you know, not eating meat at every meal? Can we ensure that the systems that livestock are raised in are more environmentally sustainable, sustainable you know, promote animal welfare practices? So can we do things better um, and in a much more equitable and, and, and environmentally sustainable way and I think the answer is yes
0: I just want to read a few sentences here from uh, eating our way through the Anthropocene it was based on a stegener lecture by uh, Jessica Fenza who joins us uh, So just comments writes um, interesting Ethical questions underline this conversation. There are places in the world, United States being one example, that have energy-intensive lifestyles and energy-intensive diets, which contribute significantly to human health costs and climate change disruption. However, it's economic, it's in economically poor uh, households who disproportionately suffer the impacts of climate change. In sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, East Asia, people are being forced to move or migrate, despite not being ones who are consuming excessively or eating in environmentally-intensive ways ways. And this begs the question, do we have the right to eat wrongly? So that frames it as an ethical uh, question. It also underlines what you said earlier in the program, we're all interconnected.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, we're, I, I feel if we consider ourselves global citizens, um, we enter into a social contract with each other, and we need to ensure that um, everyone gets the best chance at a a healthy and and um, happy life um, now if you don't view yourself like that and you want to only put your country first um, that's gonna be really difficult because we live in a very interconnected world um, you can try to keep people out from migrating as much as you want but it'll end up on your doorstep in one way or another whether it's a zoonotic disease or it's people trying to cross into your borders because it's too hot where they are, it's going to come at some point or another. So to me, how do we make the world a better place, a more fair place? And that doesn't mean you have to make huge sacrifices to your diets, but you could be a little bit more aware and a little bit more conscious about your own health and the health of your family, the health of your community, and then and then the community of the world Um, and I don't think you have to make huge changes to your diet but I don't think that the trajectory that the world is on now is one that is sustainable for anybody so and you know of course now poor populations are being disproportionately affected by climate change and the choices that high-income countries have made but there's going to be a point where everyone is going to be affected, and we are already feeling that in the United States. And we're having very hot summers, a lot of wildfires, and we're going to continue to feel the effects if, if changes are not made um, by individuals, by governments. So we can keep pushing it off as long as we want, but there's going to be a point where um, no matter what your economic means are, uh, you know, if a hurricane is coming, <laughs> it's coming, <laughs> um, and uh, so it's nice to think that you, you know you can always get out of harm's way. But um, that's a, a bit of wishful thinking, in, in in my view. Well,
0: let's take another break. Uh, come back with our last segment, Jessica. So um, I just want to tease this. We'll have you give some mm-hmm. answers after, but you ask, can we have it all? Can we have human health, improve diets, stay within planetary boundaries to save ourselves and save the planet? You go on to say, can we have it all? It depends. <laughs> so, And then you, you give some recommendations. We'll get into that following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jessica Fanzo, who's Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Global Food Policy and Ethics at Johns Hopkins University. She's author of Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? And just out from University of Utah Press, Eating Our Way Through the Anthropocene, which is uh, based on a Stegner lecture at the University of Utah that Jessica Fanzo gave uh, so, reading from that uh, lecture, uh, you say, "Can we have it all? Can we have human health, improved mm-hmm. diets, stay within planetary boundaries to save ourselves and save the planet?" Uh, and then you go on to say, "The answer is it depends." So, it uh, depends on what you gave some recommendations.
1: Yeah, I think you know it really depends on government's commitment to even think about food when when they're making climate commitments. So. Um, If you look at the convention of parties, the COP meetings that happen every year where countries come together and they negotiate on climate actions, food is not really even considered, even though it contributes about 30 percent of total greenhouse gas emissions. So one of the big things governments can do is recognize that food is uh, an instigator of climate change but that we can take action in food systems to make them climate smart um, and ensure that people can get access to healthy foods for the future. Um, So one is just governments committing and paying attention more to food systems um, and the role that they play in climate change, the role they play in people's lives. Right now we're seeing food prices go up and up and up. Um, because of the Ukraine-Russia crisis and climate events. Um, so it's time to take action. I think food corporations can also make a big difference ensuring that food products are healthier, you know, whether it's reformulating the foods to try to reduce the salt and sugar intake, but um, using technologies to to. Make healthy foods tasty and affordable is, is, is key. Corporations know how to do it, it's just the incentive structures um, need to be there. Um, and then governments need to help consumers make better, better choices, I'm giving them the knowledge, giving them the tools to be able to make those choices easy. It shouldn't be so challenging and in such a difficult lift for consumers to try to figure out what is environmentally sustainable? What is healthy? You know, that could be front of the pack labels, um, making it so healthy foods are are more conveniently available. Um, So there's a lot of different ways that we can ensure um, that, we can have it all. You know, we have a lot of technologies on farms to make them more sustainable. We have technologies to make livestock systems more environmentally uh, relevant. Um, so, so we do have the tools. It's just the committing to those and recognizing that food is part of the climate agenda would be the first big step.
0: You, uh, as, a, as a part of this part of the paper, and you, you made reference to this just now, um, you, you talk about an experience from Chile. The Chilean government um, has, has really ramped up, uh, made some changes to front-of-the-package uh, labeling. Oh, you Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, Chile is a great example because, um, and, and there's a couple of Latin American countries. Mexico's been doing a lot of really great, public health work, too. But what Chile did, did was that they were growing increasingly concerned about obesity and uh, non-communicable diseases like heart disease and diabetes growing in their in their country. And they realized that food was a big contributor to, the, to obesity and, and these diseases. And when they looked at people's diets in Chile, they realized that a huge portion of the diet was made up of these highly, highly processed packaged foods, you know, soda, cookies, potato chips. And so what they decided to do is they put black stop signs on the front of these food packages. They got a stop sign. If it was high in salt, they got another stop sign. If it was high in sugar, another stop sign, if it was unhealthy fat and They were basically warnings, and they went even further that if the package had a stop sign on it, they regulated that food. That food could not be sold in schools or sold near schools. The food could not be advertised on TV or on social media. So they really have done a concerted effort to warn consumers about these foods but then regulated them in their advertising and marketing to young children. And what they saw was a pretty significant decline in the purchases of these foods. After one year, um, the purchases of these foods went down about 30% among consumers. And it also did one other thing. It drove industry, food industry, to try to reformulate those food products to avoid Getting that warning sticker on the food package, so it did two things, which is um, uh, great learning lessons and things that other countries can can do and scale up.
0: We have about three minutes left in the conversation, Now, I, I want to have you uh, bring this down to the individual level. That's where we feel, you know, the, so we do have the most control, right? Um, mm. So, you know, what are a couple of things that the, that I can do? And I'm thinking about fixing dinner that uh, I can also <laughs> fix the planet, to, to quote the title of your book.
1: Yeah, I think maybe thinking twice about eating red meat. You know, try to, try to reduce your red meat consumption is a big one. Um, you know, reduce pork consumption. Um, it's easy to be vegetarian for breakfast and even for lunch, and then you could eat animal foods for dinner if you wanted to. But maybe making one meal of the day, vegetarian or making, um, one day of the week, a vegetarian week or two days, um, using more beans. You know, there's a lot of great beans that you don't have to boil them overnight. You can get canned beans like garbanzos or black beans and make tacos with, with fresh salsa. You know, there's, there's great ways to be more plant-based a lot of Asian cuisines um, are naturally plant-based. Thai, uh, Indian, Vietnamese, Chinese can all be very tasty vegetarian-based. So try some of uh, these international cuisines. Go out to eat. Um, using your freezer. You know, if you can't finish foods, put them in the freezer. Save them for later. If you do have leftovers, make stocks and put that in the freezer. Um, you know, they, these are all the kind of easy things you can do. And whatever you do, try to eat l- less of these ultra-processed foods. Um, they're really killers to human health. You know, they're really detrimental to your health. Um, they increase your waistline. They increase your risk of heart disease, some cancers diabetes, um, really trying to minimize that sugary, salty snacks as much as you can and reach for a handful of nuts or, um, you know, some baby carrot sticks and um, healthier snacks some yogurts that will, uh, you know, are low in sugar to try to minimize those highly, highly processed foods that are really just devastating for for human health.
0: Well, we'll leave it there. A good place to end the conversation. Um, Jessica Fanzo has been our guest. Bloomberg, Distinguished Professor of Global Food Policy and Ethics at Johns Hopkins University, author of Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2021. The new book, out from University of Utah Press, is called Eating Our Way Through the Anthropocene, was originally delivered as a Stegner lecture for the Wallace-Stegner Center for Land Resources and Environment at University of uh, Utah. Uh, Jessica Penzo, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today to Access Utah. We'll go out, as we always do on a Wednesday, with uh, Beehive Archive.
2: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. In Navajo belief systems, water is alive and a vital part of a healthy landscape. When Glen Canyon Dam blocked the flow of the Colorado River, a landscape that holds deep meaning in traditional Navajo spirituality was completely transformed. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. For some, impounding the Colorado River behind Glen Canyon Dam was a wildly successful technological advancement. But for the people in the Navajo Nation, it was an act of violence to the land. As early as 1922, when federal agreements aimed to fairly divide the waters of the Colorado among western states, the Navajo tribal government was excluded from the negotiations. Even as river flowed through their lands, no guaranteed water right was allotted to the Navajo people. And when the Glen Canyon Dam was later built in the 1960s, the resulting reservoir dramatically impacted Navajo well-being. For the Navajo people, water is a living being. Tribal leader Hank Stevens explains that, quote, Every living thing has to have oxygen. Even water has to have oxygen. If it doesn't have oxygen, it won't flow. And if you look at running water, you'll see little bubbles in it. The Navajo name for water is the one that you can see through. And as Stevens tells it, Damming the Colorado River significantly impacted the spirituality and health of the Navajo people. He talks about how the confluence of the San Juan and Colorado Rivers are a convergence of male and female life forces and a site for offerings and ceremonies. Since the impoundment of the river and creation of Lake Powell, these sites are inaccessible to Navajo who want to make offerings there. We never really had any type of health problems or anything like that, Stephen says. Until, in recent years, some of our people have become diabetic and are dying of heart attacks. If you look at the rivers, that impoundment is pretty much like a blockage in your artery. Both rivers were the main arteries of the land, but once you stopped it and held it back, those are some of the things that some of our traditional people are looking at as to why some of our people are being exposed to some of these health problems. The long-term exclusion from water development decisions has been devastating for Navajo people. And while Glen Canyon Dam blocks the flow of the Colorado River, a landscape that holds meaning in traditional Navajo spirituality is forever transformed. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at UtahHumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities,
1: I'm Megan Weiss.